0: Good evening, everyone. Good evening and welcome to Big Tent Live Events, a live online event series from the University of Oxford as part of the Humanities Cultural Programme, one of the founding stones for the future Stephen A. Schwarzman Centre for the Humanities. My name is Wes Williams, I'm a Professor of French and I'm also the Director of TORCH, the Oxford Research Centre in the Humanities. We're continuing to bring this event programme online and hope that you are all safe and well during this extended and difficult time. Everyone is welcome in our Big Tent as we explore big ideas here together. I'd like to remind you that this exploration is also collective and that you can submit questions and comments for our speakers. Please type these into the YouTube live chat below and we'll answer as many as possible later in the session. In our first Big Tent live event of this term, we bring you a concatenation of rumor. In other words, a conversation between writer, filmmaker, and art historian Nana Ofariata Ayim and Professor of African History, Richard Rathbone. The discussion tonight will be the first that celebrates the paperback edition of Nana's celebrated novel, The Godchild. Nana and Richard will also discuss the interplay of academic life, academic research, and fiction, and how narratives are shaped and reshaped according to the telling and the tellers. To chair the discussion this evening, I'm delighted also to welcome now to the screen Dr. Laura van Blackhoven. Laura Laura is the director of the Pitt Rivers Museum and professorial fellow at Linnicka College here in the University of Oxford. Previously, she led the curatorial department of the Dutch National Museum of World Cultures, was senior curator for Middle and South America, and was departmental lecturer in archeology, span museum studies, and indigenous heritage at Leiden University. Laura's regional academic research has focused on collaborative collection research with Amazonian indigenous peoples and Maasai communities from Kenya and Tanzania. Yokotan Maya oral history, Miztec indigenous market systems and merchant biographies and Nicaraguan indigenous resistance in colonial times. In other words, it's hard to find uh, think of anyone better to chair tonight's discussion. Welcome, Laura, and many thanks for joining us tonight. Um, You're part of the international network that we have here, some of us in Oxford, others elsewhere in the world. Um, And so without further delay, I'll hand over to you to introduce our speakers and to begin the conversation. And all being well, if the Internet holds out, I'll only return right at the end to say goodbye again. Over to you, Laura.
1: Thank you, Wes, and uh, thank you for having me. And, and I can think of a uh, hundred people who would be much better than me than, than me to um, have this conversation because I think that the people that we have um, in the room tonight are such. Um, you know. Um, of of such eminence um, and um, work in areas that I am um, partly wholly unfamiliar with. But at the same time, um, I've been a a great admirer of the work that both Nana and Richard um, have been able to bring to us. Um, And I think I'm I'm going to really sort of um, limit myself to make sure that we have the maximum amount of um, time um for the conversation to introducing Nana and Richard. Um, And so then I'll start with Nana and then Richard and then I'll hand over to Richard actually to give a presentation, a a short presentation of five, seven minutes um, about um, his uh, book and his um, work. And then afterwards, Nana um, from Ghana is uh, going to um, talk about her uh, wonderful um, book um, of the Godchild. foriata Ayim almost doesn't need an introduction anymore. She's a writer, a filmmaker, an art historian, and really... I always wonder how she combines the many, many different aspects of the inspiring and exciting, the innovative work that she combines. She lives and works in Accra, Ghana, and as a special advisor to the Ghanaian government on museums and cultural heritage, she's leading the country's museum restructuring program. Now, she's also the founder of um, ANO, the Institute of Arts, Um, and knowledge. And she appeared in almost every newspaper, I think worldwide, uh, when she pioneered ANO a pan-African cultural encyclopedia. One of the most exciting cultural conceptual rethinking of what museums might look like in the future, what they can actually be in a more sort of in, a, in another possible possible is also led by Nana. Um, and this is a, a project called the Mobile Museums Project that to me really sort of um, illustrates that uh, we can move beyond what is um, usually conceptualized at what museums are uh, and what they should be. Now, her curation of uh, Ghana's first pavilion at the uh, Venice Biennale was widely acknowledged as both thrillingly beautiful and shaking up the Biennale's usual whiteness. In 2019, Nana published her first novel, The Godchild, with Bloomsbury, and for our German-speaking audience, um, a German translation has just come out with Penguin. Now, the uh, book touches the heart and mind, at least that's how I experienced it when I was reading it last summer. The book really touches the heart and the mind equally, and I cannot but recommend reading it um, more highly. Now, for someone like myself, living in the world of museums, it also offers both beauty and imagination and asks some very important and piercing questions around ownership and around entitlement and around um, many different aspects that um, one can sort of think around, around migration and and how one assembles um, and, and feels disassembled. Um, when living uh, in, my, in a sort of state of migration and or coming home, a bit similar to the sort of questions it asks about, the book asks about the, the assemblages that have been built up in European museums. But we'll, I'm sure we will touch on that um, later in the conversation. Now, there's too many accolades, other accolades to mention, awards that Nana has rightfully won. But I just want to um, sort of now first discuss uh, Richard and uh, move on with the conversation, because otherwise um, I would take up all all the evening just talking about how much amazing work has been done. Uh, Richard Rathbone uh, began his research career at the School of um, Oriental and African Studies, or SOAS, where he worked under the pioneer historian of Africa, Roland uh, Oliver. Uh, Richard um, has served as chairman of the University Of London's Centre for African Studies and as the SOAS Dean of Postgraduate Studies, and was promoted to a chair in Modern African History in 1994. And then a series of research trips um, followed and fellowships that led him to Ghana and the University of. Cape Town, Johannesburg, Harvard, and Princeton, as well as Bordeaux, uh, Lesotho, and uh, Toronto. Uh, Richard's current appointments include Emeritus Professor and Professional Research Associate at SOAS, and Honorary Professor in History at Aberystwyth uh, University. He is also the author of many books, including Murder and Politics in Colonial Ghana, um, and... Um, Krumah and the Chiefs, The Politics of chieftaincy in Ghana between 1951 and 1960. And some of those books have really um, been given amazing um, accolades and both in the way that Richard writes them uh, and the um, sort of boldness and at the same time very thoroughness in which they capture a degree of as um, the Times Literary uh, Supplement said about one of the books said that they captured a degree remarkable degree of uh, the tragi- tragedy and confusion of Ghana's transition from bold pioneer of anti-colonial modernism to post-modern epitome of post-colonial despair. Um, the Sunday Telegraph talks about um, how Richard's book allows the reader to enter into the past in a way which history written on a grander scale sometimes does not, because it's more restrained, it's very scholarly and often almost elegiac in tone and uh, the Journal of Commonwealth uh, in comparative politics, talks about how his book has the pace and tension of an historical thriller and tells the story of a genuine watershed in British Imperial history. So um, I cannot wait but hear how this conversation is going to um, take place because um, there's so much, so many different aspects within which um, the the different books and the different um, ways of reading, elements of history actually uh, enable us to uh, think more deeply and um, in new ways about how history has shaped. So Richard, I'm going to hand over to you and mute myself.
2: Thank you, Laura. Um, I got into this particular bit of my research career by being troubled by the the domination in histories of 20th century Ghana, which is where I've done most of my work in Africa, the domination of 20th century Ghanaian political history by a single narrative. And that single narrative is, of course, the the great epic anti-colonial struggle conducted by a radical nationalist party uh, who took Ghana very successfully on a mission to regain sovereignty from colonial rule. Unfortunately, I spent an awful lot of my life buried in archives, which is what historians do. And a lot of the documentation, particularly in the Ghana National Archives, which was very much my second home, what emerged uh, out of that immersion was at least as important as that struggle, the struggle that has the focus, the anti-colonial struggle. And that struggle is a struggle of a, a radical nationalist party which becomes, after 1951, a government, a struggle against traditional chiefly government, chiefly authority, chiefly states. And the dominant narrative, the, uh, the, the, the winner's narrative, insisted that chiefly authority was supported and even created by colonial rule. And accordingly, joined at the hip, colonial rule and traditional rule constituted a kind of unholy alliance, an ancien regime that deserved to be ousted. Now, the question that occurred to me first of all was was that demonization of traditional rule entirely justified? And my answer as a reasonably radical person, I think, was yes, in many ways it was. Traditional authority had indeed been bolstered by colonial policies. And those colonial policies had in West Africa, anyhow, relied on the, the devolution of many powers to these kingdoms, because it had devolved to them control over things like law and order, uh, dominating over half the binary legal system uh, in, in those states. And in some, some cases, these states had their own, own local police forces, their own local prisons. It had also the colonial state devolved to chieftaincy Chiefly rule, tax collection, sanitation, licensing of moneylenders, letter writers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. goes on and on and on. And in some cases, these powers were exercised in a thoroughly undemocratic and self-serving fashion. I think we should make no secret of that, because I tend to romanticise uh, the state we're going to be talking about. none is going to be talking about um, possibly too much. In the the oppressive quality of chiefly rule lies the roots of the disenchantment of many of the new generation of literate young people and their attraction to Nkrumah's Convention People's Party. This is the interwar period uh, and the immediate postwar period uh, of the 20th century. But what we knew about those uh, kingdoms derived from a very fine, if limited ethnographic corpus, and the views of governments both British and, from 1951, Ghanaian. And I wanted to know a little bit more about traditional chieftaincy. And for a variety of reasons, I started looking at Achim Abwakwa, which some people call Akim Abuakwa, but wrongly. None and I would call it Achim Abwakwa. Not least because for 31 years, a long period of life, a generation, the tenant of the royal throne and you'll see uh, Nana actually is in the palace the Fori Panentie where this man sat on his stool sat on his throne but he was a very obviously very remarkable man called Nana Sir Foriatu he'd been knighted by the british in 1927 he did everything that it was possible to be as an african in the interwar period he was uh, on the colonial legislature. He was a colonial grandee. For and much of the literature, uh, however, despite all of these achievements, considerable achievements, much of the literature wrote him off as a collaborator and as a colonial stooge. But are those labels of collaboration, stoogishness uh, justified? And I think not, because a massive amount of the documentation, and there is a huge amount of it, including his own archive in the palace that Nana is sitting in at the moment, argue something very much more interesting than that. First of all, he was a man who used the weakness of the colonial state, which actually had no physical presence in Acha until 1908. He used the weakness of the colonial state to assist him in rebuilding his kingdom as a modern state. And when colonial officers arrived, as they did from 1908, he dominated them. He really did dominate them, did not, not dominated them. He had them in his pocket. So much so as one of the, the most long running district officers in uh, Achimabwakwa was actually called Kibby Cheby Jones. He'd been, as it were, taken over by Cheby, taken over by the Royal Palace. Afriata's vision, I think, can be summed up by being a vision of self-sufficiency, the acquisition of modern skills, and especially literacy, progressive agriculture, and above all, the retention of control of resources. For example, controlling the access to mining concessions in in gold and diamond fields in the the state, the the, the kingdom. And equally important, and I think Nana will have a lot to say about this, he really cared about the defense of his ancient culture from which a lot of the sources of Nana's book come, come from. Basically, he got away with all of this because he was so much more clever than the colonial establishment officers. He was fluent in Chui, the language of the Akan people, um, and uh, Achimabwakwa is an Akan state, fluent in both Chui and in English. And the correspondence between him, and there's mountains of it, the correspondence between him and colonial authority always shows him to be the stylist. He's the grammarian, he's the master of the case law's intricacies. He's the subtle debater, and they look so leaden-footed in comparison with him. He runs rings round them. And consequently, the colonial authorities were intimidated, I think, to a certain extent by him. They deferred to his knowledge of traditional law, and that knowledge of traditional law was bolstered by the two massive tomes on traditional Akan law and customs written by his no less extraordinary half-brother the pioneer nationalist, the lawyer, the playwright, the journalist, J.B. dankwa his half-brother, as I said. So Afriato's political clout ensured that his opinions became ex-cathedral rulings. He's not alone in that kind of figure in a colonial state. There are a couple of others I can think of. The great Lala Sukuna in Fiji uh, left his imprint on the colonial state in, uh, in that kind of way, as did Apollo Kagwa in Uganda both, all of whom were, I think, able to perform with such manifest authority that their understandings, their portrayals of, quotes, the native world, they were the ones that dominated. Now, after years in the company of Nanua Furiata in written form, of course, he died, uh, died before I was able to keep his company. I've always seen him as a, a conservative nationalist. And I think he was a nationalist. He was dedicated to what he called progress. He was dedicated to the development as well as the defense of his culture. And while he was manifestly a conservative of the small C, he was also attractively progressive. He built a school near Achebi, the HM Achebebwakwa State College, so that young Achem HM people would not have to study as boarders, as strangers in the big schools in Accra or Cape Coast. He was remarkable in the interwar period for being an enthusiast for the education of women, amongst whom were his daughter, who was to become Ghana's first woman doctor, and incidentally, the aunt to Ghana's current president. He was additionally behind the so-called cocoa holdup, a strike of cocoa farmers withholding the cocoa cocoa they produced to uh, receive a fairer price on the world market. Uh, and then to try to strangle the brokers out of business. Um, And he even tried to negotiate deals which would have cut out the middlemen, cut out the cocoa brokers. Now, all of this was a balancing act, and one which required very hard work. The Royal Archive really uh, revealed a man to have been extremely industrious, Uh, a monarch whose commitment to detail always reminded me, when I was going through his 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 correspondence, reminded me of Philip II or Louis XIV, people who worked way after closing time again and again and again. And being persuasively progressive whilst being at the same time notably repressive, that's a juggling act. And this great juggler died in 1944. And as with the removal of a a keystone in a, a great Gothic cathedral, the roof fell in. Uh, the story that brings Nana and myself together is what, what goes on in the 40 days of mourning after his death. Some members of the royal family were accused of being complicit in a ritual murder. And Chebi, uh, the capital city of Achimabwakwa, once the cynosure of the admiring gaze of the world, I think, lost the support of the colonial government while attracting the heightened hostility of the radical political party, which was effectively to govern Ghana from 1951 to 66. And it's that case, as I've already said, that brought Nana and myself into, I hope, productive and enjoyable contact. Now she brings to the narrative something that I can't, or a lot of things that I can't. She brings to that narrative insights which I could not and did not entertain. My account rests on the stories, that are available in archives, lots and lots and lots of them. And from hours and hours and days and days of interviews and information gained from those interviews from only men. Uh, Women did not talk to me during the period that I spent doing research in Chebe, the period of time that I spent doing research in Ghana. She has as a consequence, as a member of the royal family, she's the granddaughter of Nana Soferiata. She has access to what intrigue, the language of uh, the Akan, uh, she has access to what are called the things of the house, the family secrets, and in some ways, I suppose, the dirty washing uh, as well. And in her very wonderful book, which I have on my desk here, I hope it can be seen uh, on screen, she explores things that I could not explore, such as feelings and meanings, what it is like to grow up as a royal child, which she is no longer a child, but certainly royal, and growing up as a child of someone whose close kin has been hanged for murder. Very dramatic thing to have in the the history of your family. And for me, uh, it's a great privilege for me as a historian to be able to read in her work a a very fine exploration of thoughts and sensations, I could only imagine, but thoughts and feelings and sensations which she has realised in her book. And in that sense, I think we, I hope that we are kind of complementary contributors to the understanding of a, a very extraordinary man, a very extraordinary part of the world, a very extraordinary culture, a very extraordinary
3: kingdom. That's it. I finished. Hello? That's... Well-
1: that is wonderful. Um, um, So I I thank you so much for um, that context um, on the one hand and that historical insight which I think is um, and also drawing the line towards Nana's work and how uh, there's a different dimensions that the work brings. One sort of having um, really from um, working through the archives and um, investigating the archives and interviews with mostly men and um, the other story which Nana I'm I'm happy you've um, been able to uh, put your video also on and that you're here with us and in a very exceptional setting of the palace I'm going to hand over to you uh, for your uh, introduction thank you
3: Thank you, um, Laura, and thank you, Richard. Um, you are asking Laura, um, how I managed to get everything done, um, and sometimes the answer is: uh, oh. I don't. we were in the middle of a filming day, um, which Richard this morning, um, and that hence I'm still sometimes of multitasking. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm in the fear in the palace, actually, I have the drums, I, I, I decided to sit in front of the drum house, because they have so much um, to do with the narrative that I wrote, but also the inspiration of everything, more or less, that I do. Um, you'll see the, the ones on the wood, actually the Pum drums, the talking drums of our and like I said, one of the big inspirations um, for my work are the talking drums and the ayan. Um, the um, sorry, there's a lot of noise here in the background the downfalls, Uncle and Uncle Fraser was what they call which is a divine drama. Um, and when I actually did my master's at SOAS, um, where um, Professor Rathbone or Richard was a, was a professor. And when I did my master's in African art history, I um, realized that the terms and the concepts of which I was describing my culture were all foreign ones. And I started looking for, um, a narrative form, concepts, terms, in which I could describe my culture on their own terms. And so I started looking at oral literature, um, and that's when I came across drum poetry, which was this incredibly poetic, philosophical um, way of telling history. And not only did I come across the drum poetry, but I realized that my own uncle was a master of the drums, a divine drummer. And so I kind of became a, an apprentice to him. I sat at his feet for years, documenting the drum poems, um, you know, their deeper meaning. There's different boys that learn the drum, but only a few of them get passed on the deeper meaning, the secrets of the drum. Um, And when it came to actually wanting to drum myself, I was told that unfortunately, because I, I was a woman, I wasn't allowed to. So these drums behind me, the atom palm, I'm actually unfortunately not allowed to touch, which is a shame, but it also actually drove me into the question of how do I become a historian? Um, of, you know, using the forms of the ayàn on my own terms, you know, because there, there are certain restrictions, spiritual, traditional, that stop me from becoming one in a traditional sense. And that's when I um, reach to writing and filmmaking. But I always am inspired by the form of the Ayan, um, which underscores everything. Which underscores everything that I do. So, even in the book itself, the rhythms of the I am, um, the cyclical nature of it, the elliptical nature of it, um, the abstract nature of it was really, really, really a driving force behind it. And then, um, not only, and also my great grandfather. So, my grandfather's father was also an Odomon And there's, um, maybe Richard can speak about it a little bit. Um, There was a great kind of, um, schism between him and the reigning king when my great grandfather became a christian um, and was driven from the kingdom um and 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 was basically i think you richard you you likened it to the story of Jesus where he was driven from the kingdom and had to kind of bring up his family elsewhere um then obviously his sons both his sons had a kind of reconnection with the kingdom in a very deep way um Another kind of source, obviously, of 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 the kind of stories that I've told is Richard's own writing, both in *Cromwell* and *The Chiefs, and um, the the one that's set here in Atiamabuakwa. I the book was I think three times as long when I first wrote it because it had a lot of historical um, background. Again, drawn a lot on Richard's writing, and so it's a real a real privilege um, to be sitting, not here while well, sitting digitally or metaphysically in some way here with him and to be able to talk about it. I'm going to read just a little tiny bit of the beginning of the book just to kind of set the tone in a um, fictional way. And then I think it would be great if we could actually have a discussion about some of the themes. I cannot remember how I first knew my life was not my own. It came to me not at once, not in words or visions, not in capitals or in imperatives or assertions but as a perennial wordless whisper, a stream whose beginnings were beyond sight and whose ends I somehow seemed to carry. I looked over at him, he was the one they would have chosen for me and yet I had arrived here by my own volition. I had watched in all these years on both sides from close quarters as if at a poker table, too smoky, too male, too shrouded in codes I had neither the ability nor willingness to understand. I had thought of the generation above above me as still too tainted by colonial malaise, of my generation as a bridge, of our daughters and sons as the ones to be truly, hopefully free. And yet, quietly, imperceptibly, I'd been witness to a transformation from a narrative too large, too unwieldy, too unconcerned with the small and the human, too couched in arrogance and entitlement, To one of hard work, nobility, loyalty, fidelity. Through the clarity, though the clarity, the vision, the truth of it was not yet apparent. It seemed a certain grace had set in and that it was all of ours. There was tiredness, exhaustion, disillusion, cynicism, mistrust on all fronts. But strangely, it also felt like something new was beginning. Not for one side or the other, but for us as human beings sharing a geographical space, creating a common story. All that was missing was the joy, the likeness and innocence of my mother, her brothers, of Kojo, and yet they had not survived. I looked at him now, as he walked towards me, at all of them, they who had finally won. But I was more my mother's daughter, Kojo's sister, than theirs. Could I look back to that first splintering, that first awakening, and learn? Could I win as they had and still as they had not remain open? Could I, as my mother and Kojo had not survive? And so, yeah, that's a little bit of the introduction to the book and, and, and quite a few of the themes of it, of freedom and obligation and, you know, the kind of maleness of power and of trying to fit in. And yeah, a lot, a lot of those themes, but I would love to have a conversation with Richard um, and with Laura about, about some of those now. Richard, I don't know if there's there's anything you want to pick up on or or or, or say, or maybe I can ask you some questions. Or Lara.
2: I think Laura's in charge. This Richard, okay. I,
1: yeah, I think Nana has given you a number of questions and it would be really wonderful to hear uh, what your thoughts are. So, so would you be able to sort of give some reflections around the, uh, the elements that Nana has sort of uh, brought uh, both around, you know, sort of her um, getting to know um, the... The history of her grandfather um, through some of your, your own work, um, and at the same time, sort of some of the questions that she also posed about sort of the uh, the piece that was written, which really has you know sort of made are some of Maya's uh, reflections uh, in the book on uh, how power is assigned.
2: I suppose the question that, that, that I, I felt all the way through reading Nana's book um, is, what does it feel like to be royal? I have no experience of it at all. I'm a rank commoner, but there is something very special about being royal and it's about uh, oppression. I think that, that it, it weighs heavily on the shoulders. Uh, it's a tough thing to be. Their expectations all the time of it, and their expectations not just as of being royal, but in what royalty has done to the stem family, the house of the Asana uh, uh, clan that you're a member of, of very high achieving, very successful, uh, very powerful people. And I have no experience of that personally. Um, and it comes out very much in the book that the that that sense of being held under in a way, as well as being pushed up. It seems a very binary experience and a very frightening one in some ways. And I think the fear comes out of the book as well. And is that a a bad reading of Godchild?
3: No, I think it's a really, really, really accurate one. And interestingly, you're, I think the first person who's really picked up on it so strongly. And I think probably that's because of your research. you know I also you know at the beginning I think I wasn't so um explicit maybe in that in the fact that it was you know there was elements of 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 kind of self in it but I think that you know this idea or this dichotomy of 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 obligation and you know we we obviously you know in our culture the ancestors kind of are such a plays such an important role in our lives, this idea of continuity and, you know, that they're always there with us. And, you know, Maya in the book has this sense that from the very beginning, she um, she has this obligation, she has these voices that are always, and that she kind of has to function of, can she you know can she not be and it's a bigger question of history as well you know can one free oneself from the burden from the obligation of history um you know both individually and collectively as well um and yeah this is a question that I, i ask myself a lot you know both as an individual but also as as an as a cultural historian um yeah so i think it was it's a very 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 apt reading
2: I'd like to ask if, if you allow me the time, Laura, uh, to, to to ask really what what of the, the things of the house did you learn? I'm not asking for specific data, but how far how far in could you get uh, in terms of those close kept secrets that are were anyhow historically part of what the the, the ruling council of the state, the Ottoman Council, uh, had, what they understood and. To, to, to be which weren't for other people to, to, to digest or know about and things that i could never find out about and also access to places i could never go to um, which you can and i can't um, and it's a very it's, it's a very big chunk of experience and understanding caught up in all of that uh, what places look like what they feel like uh, and what are the moments at which people say shush
3: I think, I think that's such a, again, such a kind of, it's quite a deep question in a way, because I think knowledge and secrecy and power are so closely interwoven, like not just in this case, but generally in all, for example, the indigenous knowledge systems that I've been looking at, is the idea that knowledge is such power, that you don't hand it over easily. You only give it to those who are spiritually who are um, you know, um, who've deve- who, who was very, very, very serious about it. And I've shown that seriousness through years and years and years and years of commitment. Um, you, you don't just hand knowledge over. And I, I think one of those things, one of the um, um, consequences of that guarding of knowledge was that, you know, a lot of the time when researchers or anthropologists came in, you know, there was the seeming death of knowledge because people just wouldn't talk or they would mislead um with knowledge and and i think that's it's a really interesting um not just in this specific case but just generally the 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 notion of knowledge and of passing on knowledge is so it's just so different to anything that I learned in my Western education, where knowledge is such an explicit thing. It's like any knowledge, anything that you learn is good and it's linear. And the more that's said and the more that's visible, the better. Here, it's really about secrecy. It's about guarding even the ayam, the drum poetry has so many gaps within it. So that even the poems, are being passed on as history, but yet you have to know all of these backgrounds in order to piece together that history. And so to answer your question about how, you know, how much I personally could access, it's been a long ongoing journey. I mean, I had a very, very, very close relationship with my uncle, which led me, you know, into, certain areas of knowledge that you know he told me for example that I could never share and I was like but I'm a historian <laughs> I, you know that's my that you know I want to share I want to and in a way that's kind of the freedom of fiction as well is that yes. Yes. you know there's not the the kind of hard facts but that you can play with the idea of truth and I find and that's also why I ended on that chapter the appendix, which was very, very, very heavily inspired. I love that somebody described your book as a thriller because I found that as well. Like, and that's why I kind of had that parallel to the way that you told the story as well, right down to like when they put the black square down you know, and, and kind of like the judgment was told. I just, I found it so captivating. And you know, in that, in that appendix, I try to really explore the idea of what is truth Because, you know, in and and I think, you know, to go back to the title of this talk, um, a concatenation of rumour, the idea of what truth was, and especially as you tell it in your book, was so fluid. It was kind of told, it was retold, tradition was retold. And I, this idea of truth not being fixed, this Idea of, you know, even in the drum poetry, for example, the eye of the drum poem could be the present king, the Ochihene, but it could also be, you know, 12 kings before, but it's still spoken of as the same person, even subjectivities into interchangeable and so what happens to a story when there is no fixed subject when there is no fixed truth but everything is possibly fluid what happens saying that still to this day so fascinating is how do you how are stories told where things are interchangeable as they are when you're telling them on the just substitute for another as the drummer is his own way Um, you know what does that say about storytelling or storytelling as you know as people know it in the western world and and I still haven't gotten to the end of it I feel like I'm still in the middle of that exploration you know as it pertains narrative but also that idea of fluidity Um, and yeah like I said I found it very very interesting in your book how you underscored that the idea that this idea that truth was something that was being made and remade this idea that tradition was something that was almost being you know like sometimes very very seemed very old but sometimes it seemed like it was almost being invented on the spot and yeah you know that might be seen in some instances as negative but there's also a certain openness to that i think
2: it's also symbolized to a certain extent by, by in a way the things that are physical and so on. I mean Friata uh, is a very traditional chief in many senses, a king I call him throughout as you know. I mean he, he rejects Presbyterianism although he's a child of the manse. His father as you say was a drummer uh, who becomes a Presbyterian minister Uh, His mother was also a Presbyterian. He rejects Presbyterianism on becoming Ochenhini, on becoming king. And although the the ministers of the Presbyterian church are allowed into the palace to pray, uh, he never goes to a service again. And during the uh, obsequies for for when he's dead, you can hear the service in the church in Chevy in the Ahenfi where the the other ceremony is going on. And the other bits of of symbolism about change, but also alteration, and I find him fascinating in terms of how flashy he is at times. I mean, this is a man who has hand-rolled cigarettes manufactured in Burlington Arcade for him, with his initials on, which he gives to visitors. He loves big American cars, the last of which I had trace of was a Chevrolet with white wall tyres, which is absolutely splendid, I think. And the fact that when the telegraph is built, which is actually a space-bridging uh, idea-spreading device in many senses. The line of the telegraph goes right over the mausoleum, right over the mausoleum of all the dead Ochen- Ochenhini. uh, That The symbolism of that is very, very marked. And it's but yards away, feet away, metres away, from a tennis court that he had built, uh, an all-weather tennis court built in the palace grounds, which is sadly overgrown. When, when I last saw it. And I love all those disjunctures that, that go on between, as you say, the, the falsity of, the, obviously the falsity of the notion of tradition, but also the falsity of the notion of modernity. It's the meld that's exciting and the process that leads to the meld that's exciting. I don't know whether that makes any sense.
1: Yes, I think no, it, it absolutely uh does it I, I was wondering whether I could weave in one or two questions from the public. Um because uh, Nana, no, no, there's a yeah. question.
3: Yeah, a... yeah absolutely. And, and it actually
2: hello. Yes,
1: we, we can hear you again.
3: Oh. okay. Huh. Hi, Lara. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So the question from the public is that there, um, there was a question that was asking, whether Nana, whether you could speak a little bit more about the kinds of narrative shapes your experiences with drums and drumming have created. This is from Maya Little who asked this question.
3: Um, I mean, I think it's 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 evident in the book. It's also evident in in my films as well. I mean the the drum itself the drum language itself um is made of fixed poems um there's also room for improvisation but it's not the, the, the telling of the of history is not as we know it in a linear fashion of you know it started in um 1066, and then went forward, and these wars happened. And um, you know, it kind of jumps, tells of those appellations of that ruler, and then it jumps to the present ruler with the same appellations, um, and then it interjects with kind of an interlude. And it's just, I mean, for somebody who it comes from a very formalistic um, point of view. It could seem very chaotic. You have several drum orchestras happening at the same time. And then suddenly the drummer starts speaking to the dancer in front of him and interjects. It's just, it's very um, fluid. It's very intuitive and it it, um, requires such a huge amount of mastery um, or form for you to be able to talk um, so that people can listen and, and understand, and then kind of move between rhythms and hold your audience, and you know, not just be make sense in a in a in a um, conceptual way, but also be rhythmic enough so that those who don't understand the language can also enjoy the the music of it.
1: Could could one say that in the book? That's what, exactly what you do, right? So you 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 there 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 is that sort of. Rhythm. I mean, it's there just
3: it's
1: it's an extraordinary hello yeah there's moments that we're probably not um that we're losing each other uh, or, or at least my my internet connection might not be very stable but i was just wondering that in your book, that is also very much that rhythm and that sort of change of rhythm very much also happens in the book. And you were saying earlier that your book was, you know, three times as, as, as long originally. Um, are there parts that you sort of very consciously started to change the rhythm also of the book? Because that's very, that is something that one feels in the book also, that there is that sort of just, the, yeah, the difference in rhythms.
3: Yeah, I mean, it was, it's, it's an experiment in that way, you know, the, I, the idea of kind of translating something from one form into another. Um, and, you know, I, I i didn't know to what extent, I don't know to what extent it would succeed. It was just an attempt to, you know, I think, um, is it wa Thiong'o speaks about language so much, um, you know, and about this idea of going into the post-colonial by reclaiming writing in our languages um, and for me i'd say the reclamation took another form in that i can't deny my western education i can't deny kind of my fluency in in certain western languages but i can try and inhabit them with something that's really and you know so deep and rooted to me and that's so ancestral within me and so kind of inhabits a language that, you know, to, to a certain extent was imposed on me or my forefathers and mothers, but still take ownership of it by expanding it through these forms and then see what happens. Um, I think in one of the Indigenous knowledge systems that I, I, I am looking at, the, one of the Ewa ones, it said something like language. Um, I can't remember the quote exactly now, but it said something so beautiful about language bringing you back to the harbor of self or the harbor of the soul. It was very, very, I, I, I can't, in, from the airway, it was very, very beautifully put. And I think that, you know, there's this idea, um, or I'm, at least I felt that idea sometimes growing up, that language, for me, something, and I think I, I gave Maya that a little bit as well, that kind of, um absence that she felt in terms of language of knowing of knowingness and of knowing self and how do you get back through that and i think to a certain extent with the form of the drum poetry it's my kind of way of trying to reconnect with something that i feel for example you know when when richard speaks about my grandfather and his kind of trying to really bring the kind of ancestral the traditional with him into modernity it's kind of I guess a way of of connecting with that.
1: Another question from the audience Richard is really to you um sort of the the books that you so you the book that you you've been referring to is mostly the book that you that is a Ohio University Press um um, and James Curry Press book no. Um, no. no, the one
2: we're talking about is Yale University Press, Murder and Politics. This okay. is the book that we're showing.
1: Right, that's what um, somebody who's more or less anonymous, because it only says ST asked whether you, you could repeat the, the, the books that have been referred to mostly. Um, and could you talk a little bit more about what the book touches on? Which one? The one that you've been mostly referring to and the oh, one that I've it, been referring to.
2: Well, it was, it's basically a, um, a sort of potted history of uh, achimabwaqua There wasn't really anything very much substantial written about Hachimabwakwa, which is what I was talking about, beginning how ignored uh, these kingdoms have been in the historiography because they weren't part of the teleological story of liberation. Um, so the, the the first third, I suppose, of the book is about Furiata and also about the kingdom itself in a, 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 sometimes a rather travel booky kind of way. I'm afraid. I, I loved. I loved it. The Birim Valley, which is where Chivie is, is a very beautiful part of the world, and it, it colonised me very much as a, a site of great natural beauty and peace. And I was very happy there. Uh, but it then it ends in. It, it, sorry, the, the middle bit is is the saicira that occurs with the murder, and it then becomes about the murder, uh, which is also about uh, the end of chiefly rule to a large extent, well, the, the, the slow ending of chiefly rule in, in, in Ghana. Um, and it ends with a, a rather limp attempt at talking about what I think chieftaincy might or might not be about, which I, I, at the moment I got stuck writing that I wish I hadn't started, but it had to be finished. Um, so th- th- it really is the story up to about independence 1957 the uh, second book the Nick and Crum and the Chiefs is about the hounding of uh, traditional rulers by the Convention People's Party a bit of the Convention People's Party rule from 51 in effect in internal affairs until 66 the, the coup which uh, takes out um, a lot of uh, chieftaincy reduces the power of chieftaincy to virtually nothing. And one of the abiding images of it is uh, Nana's uncle, uh, J.B. Dankwa, probably the greatest intellectual that Ghana's ever produced and, uh, and so on. Very, very brilliant scholar um, who was a presidential candidate in 1960, unsuccessfully so, but was a leader of the opposition and he's imprisoned under the Preventive Detention Act. He's a desperately sick man. And he dies in a pool of his own vomit in a swam jail. Uh, although he had called for medical help and it's been denied. So, I, I mean, that that was Walton Cromwell and the Chiefs was about the ending of chiefly privilege, if you like, and, and chiefly rule in Ghana. So they're, they're related, but different. I hope they're different, <laughs> otherwise I'd be selling a pup. <laughs>
1: no is that the uncle you were also um referring to earlier
3: no no it's actually my great great uncle
2: uncle, yeah that's supper
3: (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah it's uh, you use that word Privilege, um, Richard, and it's like probably all my life, and it was something that I, I touched on a lot in the book. This idea of um, privilege, I think, is is one, yeah, that 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 I, I concerns all of my work. Who has the power to speak? Who has the power to tell stories? And even though I speak of the divine drama or the Dumankat Majuma, it's still something that's still rooted in unequal power. Even here, you know, it's comes its power as told through the lens of a royal family. You know, what of all the hundreds and thousands of people who don't have that lens, you know, and who, how do you give access to people um, and the power to people to tell stories in the same way those who've been, you know, had the power to tell stories, you know, have. And and I think that's something that that concerns me so much is this idea of privilege and power and obviously like you know it's a huge responsibility and leadership is 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 so hard but at the same time you know how do we get to a space where that privilege is passed on to as many people as possible and it's a real dichotomy that I have with the notion that you touched on at the beginning Richard of of what royalty is because on the one hand having royal kingdoms within Ghana or, you know, having kingdoms that predated the idea of Ghana has allowed us to keep, hold on to so much of our culture, which has been exported. You know, the kenti that I'm wearing right now has become like a symbol of, you know, of, of blackness, of african Americanness, ness of, of diaspora, of connection. Um, you know, we have our gold, we have, you know, the Ashanti gold weights, we have, or Lakan gold weights, rather. There's so much that's been passed on including that I am because of the notion of royalty, because it's a concentration of power, but it's also a space in which learning culture, et cetera, was concentrated on on, on one hand. So it's allowed a lot of history, a lot of our culture, a lot of our sense of identity, and a lot of our sense of self to prevail, despite and through colonialism. And yet there's still the kind of discomfort of it being a very tiny bracket of the population and the kind of injustice and unfairness of that. And and, and how do you begin to deconstruct that? And, and that's only within our small, you know, privilege also then, obviously when it comes to race and class, et cetera, outside of our, our, our small country, it becomes even more complex. But I think that dichotomy is something that I find incredibly... Um, challenging. I don't
2: know what what you think of it. I think generation needs to be fed into that too. I mean there's no more insulting put down about things that you can and can't do than the insult which you've never had to suffer, which is that you're a small boy. Uh, Namely, shut up, you have no right to talk about this because you're not old enough and mature enough uh, to have any kind of opinion. It, it's devastating when it happens and I've seen it happen. It's like a slap in the face um, and it's very powerful. So the exclusion of, of of the young as well as women and of commoners, and to some extent, and it's something we don't talk enough about, are people of slave descent um, in, in, in the kingdom too.
3: Hmm. yeah yeah I think that um yeah this idea of of how do you give more voice to people, how do you privilege you know more stories i i yeah it's something I mean I think through the work that I'm trying to do with museums um is something that yeah is is an ongoing question of yeah how how do you make you know, I, I think that the idea, the notion of royalty in itself is not necessarily harmful because it's, it's about a kind of, I guess, a divine sense of self or like a divine sense of rootedness and belongingness. Um, but, you know, everyone should have that, yes. you know, that's that, so we should all be royals. Sure. Like, you know, everyone, everyone should have that as their birthright, not just a few. Yeah. Um, That is a beautiful note
1: to end on, uh, Nana. (laughs) uh, um, And... I'm going to, uh, if you know, unless there's any sort of urgent questions that either of you would like to um, discuss still, I was going to invite Wes to come back in. Um, and, and I just love that thought of, on the one hand, that divine sort of feeling of uh, belonging and at the same time making sure that that is actually shared with everyone so that everyone can feel that way, uh, that there's still quite a bit of work to be done um, in all the different places, I think, that we're all located. But um, the work that you're doing, Nana, with the uh, mobile museum and uh, the restructuring of the whole museum world is such hopeful work that um, it really leaves us with um, a lot to to look forward to. Uh, So thank you to both of you for what was a wonderful conversation that was too short, um, but um, absolutely brilliant amounts of um, elements that were being discussed and um, touched on. And, with, um, I'm going to uh, hand over back to you.
0: Thank you. That was indeed a wonderful discussion, and I love the ending where we got to where everyone should be royal. It, it kind of reminded me of the notion of the priesthood of all believers in a way. There's a kind of, you know, a, a, a commonality uh, across there, but something very special in there at the same time. Um, so thank you to our wonderful speakers, Nana and Richard, and also to Laura for chairing so brilliantly in what was a, a pretty tough internet world in some ways. Um, uh, we, people were coming in and out, but I think we, we stayed with it. And thank you so much for, for navigating the, the, the storms of that particular the, um, bit of, of our discussion. Um, thank you also for the viewers at home um, and to all your comments and questions. Um, and before I do a little sort of sign off about next week uh, or the w- next uh, time, um, once again, thank you so much to Nana, Lara, and Richard. Um, our big thank you. Okay, thank you. Our big tent live event series will continue here again um, in a couple of weeks' time with a bumper section of uh, theater. Uh, first on Wednesday the 12th at 7:30 p.m we will have Ariane Nushkin in conversation with Katie Mitchell. And then on Thursday the 13th at 5 pm, uh, we'll be coming to you live from an Oxford venue and joined by the award-winning playwright and actress Lilicha Chakrabarti. I hope that you'll be able to join us uh, then again, uh, but for now, many thanks again to all our speakers um, for being here. Thanks for you uh, to you for turning up and goodbye for now. Thank you.